0: Steve, the people demand to know what it's like being an archery stud.
1: Yeah, there's. Um, I saw that question from Jeff. And um, being an archery stud is likened to um, not making the high school basketball team.
0: Uh huh. Yeah. Hi. I'm George Techbachev <laughs> here with Steve Elgato Grande,
1: big cat for those who only habla es uh,
0: Anderson. And we're back for another Eastern Target podcast.
1: Off to a good start, too. Uh
0: Uh-huh, yeah. So according to Jeff Jenkins, when you're an archery stud, you get all the arrows you want when you want. You probably just hop and skip on over to the Hoyt factory and grab bows right off the assembly line. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I'm
1: going to dish on some info here. One, I didn't even have arrows at World Cup final. That was your fault. Yeah, come on. So I guess I don't always get arrows when I want. True. Well, I did get mics, and I wanted them then. Um two here here's a little interesting tidbit i uh i i go when i build a bow i go over to hoyt and generally build it myself so as not to take away from the production line now this isn't my most proud moment but the bow i shot all indoor season i built with two different modules didn't realize it accidentally yeah, I've kind of wondered why I had to really twist up my bus cable to get the timing right. But um, both shot fine. It's going to shoot better now, I hope. But, you know, wouldn't recommend it. Kind of creates a little bit of a weird pull on you.
0: So so that shows that even even, even archery studs can do some fundamental mistakes.
1: Yeah, Braden Gallantine built one once with two different cams. So... It happens, but it also goes to show just how good a compound bow is these days. I mean, it's really a matter of... It's a machine. It'll deliver the same every time. Yeah. And even with mismatched cams or module elements, it'll still deliver the same every time if you do your part.
0: I would argue that's not as bad as a friend of mine who made an Olympic team with 100 and 120 grain points in his arrows.
1: Yep. I'd say that's... uh, worse and more impressive mm-hmm, because exactly. of that. <laughs> yeah
0: imagine his horror when he figured it out
1: all right <clears throat> or his delight he's like hey man i'm really gonna be throwing down now
0: well i think it was more along the lines of gosh what my score could have been you know yeah but all right well yeah nobody just hops and skips over to the hoyt factory and grabs bows right off the assembly line
1: yeah let's be honest when i go in there i'm still signing the sign-in sheet so you know I, I get stopped by Tracy at the front desk.
0: Yep, she's like the um, like the guard dog up there. Yeah. You know, she just nobody gets past Tracy. All right, uh, hola, El Gato Grande from uh, Marty Judnick. I hope Linda calls you that at home, or you have a license plate that says that. I have neither. But you could acquire. Well, it's an awful lot for a license plate. Yeah, too much. With ever heavier point weights for indoor. Is Easton going to make a more specific spine chart to factor in point weights in addition to length, poundage, and type of bow? So many more spines are available these days. It would be great to get more specific setup categories.
1: It's kind of hard to nail down.
0: Yes. You know, I think the paper chart has its limit. And yeah. we're pretty much at it.
1: Yeah. We, we At a certain point, we can't say this is better or that is better because there's constant negating of that based off of what the top archers are using and using with success
0: yep in fact you've got top archers who are using things with success that are more or less opposed to each other right right different setups so there's a ton of um one of the elements of course is the bow right different Mm -hmm. bows for example Braden galantine with his um I'm not gonna say relatively slow, but yeah, relatively slow, Matthews. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah, his older one. Yeah, yeah his, the, the one, the, he, the yeah, C4 like the one he
1: broke the world record with. Right. Relatively. Yeah, not a not slow. a speed machine, but yeah. certainly
0: stable and, and, and consistent. In his ads. Yeah. And then you've got guys, you know, shooting flamethrower setups that are, you know, relatively fast and they've got different point weight requirements, they've got different amounts of arrow hanging out in front of the rest. What about software like uh, like Perry's software? Does that do like a Archer's good? advantage? Yes.
1: Um, I think with indoor setups, it, it I've never referenced it whatsoever. I've I've checked it on outdoor stuff, and um, usually as a validation method. But with indoor, it's mostly a test the length, test the point weight, and make sure your knock fit is good, and that's about all you can do. Spine is kind of. I mean, it is what it is on, say, a 2712. So from there, all you can do is point weight and shaft length. And sometimes, the, like you said, the opposite reaction uh, can be the, the correct move for you. So it, it's just hard to do. And I, I don't think we could put it on paper and with authority claim that
0: we're correct right. at all. Right, that's the problem. Because what works for one person is is very likely not to work for another. Exactly. And in fact, if you think about this from another perspective, going back to our previous podcast when we told the tale of how you, Steve, um, you know, you showed up at uh, Vegas with only your Vegas competition set up and then discovered that you had to shoot the World Cup final, so you went scrounging around for some 23-size arrows to meet the world archery rule. You got arrows from Mike Schluser, You got arrows from...
1: Paul Tedford. Paul Tedford. George, George Riles.
0: George Riles. Now, all of these were set up differently, were they not?
1: Completely different.
0: Right. And yet... Those completely different setups, all potentially could have worked out of your bow.
1: Yeah, I mean, I shot them all, and it was there wasn't like a a cleared loser. Let's put it that way, but I did feel like mics were mics were slightly better,
0: best fit for your scenario. Yeah, and I think it was because they were cut the shortest. But we're not talking about big differences between those yet excuse me performance wise between those yet there were big differences between them in terms of setup like point yeah,
1: like one had 100 grain points and it was you know 31 inches the other one i think was 200s at about 31 31 and a half and then the other one was 200s at like 29 and a half
0: so if we were to make a statement that says there's no substitute for you know actually trying it out and group tuning and doing all that sort of thing i don't think we would be too far off the mark would we
1: Now, and I think the other issue that—and this is probably one of the main reasons we can't put it on paper—is with an indoor arrow and the actual node reaction you get off of different point weights and lengths, where you place your rest blade is going to have a big determining factor in what point weight shoots best for you.
0: Height-wise or fore and aft or both?
1: Um, I'm talking more— You mean? What do you mean when you say height-wise? Like the angle of the rest? I'm talking, the or the fore and aft with regard to the pivot point. Forward or backward? Yep. Which one? Which one? Pivot point. So where it has where it is over your wrist.
0: I know that's real important to Jesse.
1: Yeah, I I use it too.
0: And also, um, you know, Kevin Wilkie. He Mm -hmm. uh, he and Jesse at the same time, I think, came up with a theory regarding that whole thing and where that needs to be.
1: Yeah, and there was uh, it was kind of an unwritten thing that dated back to when guys were shooting overdraws with regularity and then you know kevin threw one on a bow started to see some good results with it and started trying to figure out why him and jesse started talking about it came to some similar conclusions and and they had been independently working this out i guess and you know that's where we are today with torque tuning but that i do believe that point weight and the the length of the arrow, and that relationship to the point of contact of your rest blade, that all plays a significant role. So, um, probably the main reason we couldn't put pen to paper on here's the tune chart for big, heavy aluminum arrows. Yeah,
0: honestly, that does come back to uh, to Marty's question, Marty. But it's a good question, though, and um, I would say that it's just it's it's maybe beyond the scope of what you can do with a paper chart. Charts an approximation. Gets you close. Gets you in the ballpark. You know, uh, after that, it's fine-tuning. Yep. Uh, Seth Nebaum says that uh, you mentioned during the last podcast, can we expand on grip angle for a compound shooter and what effects it can have, or even what the position of the grip vertically in the bow does to how a bow aims. I believe Hoyt has tinkered with the grip position relative to the center line on the target bows, or at least I've heard some shooters discuss it. Prime, uh, which Dave Cousins shoots, has a hunting bow now with a grip that is centered in the riser. So just, um, you can have the arrow in the middle of the riser or you can have the grip in the middle of the riser. Mm -hmm. Some different companies have different philosophies about this kind of thing.
1: Yeah. So for a long time, Hoyt used to place the throat of the grip in the vertical center of the bow. So if the bow was, you know, 40 inches long, the throat of the grip was at 20 inches. At least that's my understanding. Um, they experimented in the pro comp years with a about a five-eighths inch lower grip. Uh, worked for some. Some didn't like it. I could care less. I mean, I shot the bow and shot the bow well. And arguably, that was the bow that helped me get off to a, a good start in a professional career. Um, so from there, they went back to vertical center or the grip in the vertical center. And with that, I mean, you you have, like you said, you have bows where the grip is the center, bows where the burger buttonhole is the center, and there's stuff in between as well. Um, as important as that is, I think having cams that are designed around that is more important. Your payout and your knock travel is related to that, and contrary to popular belief i mean you might think a perfectly level straight knock travel is is the best and i'll argue that it's not
0: i will argue the same i'll argue it's a terrible idea in fact because you know it goes back to not to not to take this too far afield but it goes back to the idea that with like stabilization you're really trying to put a bias on the bow Mm -hmm. if you have no bias if you're if you're looking at a knock travel that is perfectly level that isn't controlling the arrow. It's not dominating the arrow. It's not forcing the arrow to a particular consistent reaction.
1: Right. It's like uh, there, there's a couple you know, analogies you could play. One is you have a board in the water. You know, it's floating on the water. You push the board. Which way does it go? You know, if you push it in a direct center line, does it start to your, – your, your power stroke is in a direct center line. Does that board move to the left, right? Hard to say. The other one is you balance, you know, an arrow or a toothpick straight up and down perfectly, and you let go. Where does that arrow fall? But if you if you tip that arrow just slightly, you introduce that slight bias. You know it's going to fall the same consistent direction every time. So um, from some standpoints, I do think, uh, you know, that perfectly level knock travel could be ideal. I mean, I guess if you are a, a person – Searching for the ultimate paper tune, you, you might find it with that.:
0: I think what matters is consistent, knock travel. Um,
1: and that's where I, I think it's most important. So uh, answering your question um, where you you know I'm trying to find the exact question here. I think it's, it's more um, just can we talk about it?
0: Well, we, there's another thing. you know Seth's right, Hoyt has tinkered with the grip position relative to the center line that is left and right as well. Yes. For example, um, earlier bows, a couple generations ago, I know that Zach Kurtz also developed a little bit of an angle to the grip,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: he worked with Rio Wilde on that when Rio was shooting Hoyt. And that little change, that seemed to work pretty well for some guys, and yeah. they introduced it the following year.
1: Yeah, so guys will put an outside or an inside grip pressure and there's there's very few who have a perfectly neutral grip pressure. And it's almost non-existent.
0: Again, you're biasing it to be consistent.
1: Yeah. So, literally angling that, and then where you position the grip left to right between the pockets, that has that plays a role in tuning as well. So, the issue is there's not a one size fits all. I mean, for some guys, a bow is gonna want to tune perfect because they put an outside grip pressure on it. For some guys, it's gonna they they need you know, that might throw a, a right tear. So it's really, number one, that's if you if you care about paper tuning. So it's really a matter of, that's why you're seeing adjustable systems in place, you know, adjustable cable guards. Uh, some companies are introducing a, an adjustable pocket, horizontally adjustable, which in effect, shifts the grip um, and other things like that. So it's it's complicated. I don't know everything about it. I don't want to know everything about it. I'm more of a, you know, give me the bow, and I'll shoot it. And if I hold it in the middle and make a good executed shot, it'll go there.
0: Honestly, I think that fundamentally is the best approach. I really do. Yeah. You know, you can overthink this stuff. And here's the issue. It all works. All of it, provably, can be made to work. Exactly. It's a
1: mechanical device, and it will repeat. So, you could have... A ton of knock travel, which is really what I had introduced into my bow with two different modules and shot fine. You know, I would, I would say I occasionally fought it because I felt like I was over wrapping the top a little bit. Um, and that's, again, that's not something I would try if I was the random guy, but, um, yeah, like I said, I've shot any bow from center grip to, I think we're about an inch low now on the uh, on the new prevails. So I don't think it matters. It's, it, the CAM system is designed around it, and I think that's where you get your consistency is how it pays out between the top and the bottom.
0: We got a good question from Per Bankson um, regarding the youth chart versus the standard chart. And, Pear, I'm going to tell you that we're going to answer that for you on Facebook because it's a little too complex to get into verbally on a podcast. I don't think it would be easy for people to follow but I will, I'll give you a couple of quick, just a little bit of insight as to the youth chart. The youth chart goes back to the mid-90s, and it was it an was offshoot of research that had been conducted by a top JOAD coach, the late, great Don Branson from Ohio, whose daughter was a top shooter. And Don had developed a chart that worked really well for the scenario in junior Olympic archery development, where you have a kid shooting an extra long arrow to get it to spine properly, With maybe a little more point weight and they're shooting 50 meters on the big face and that was the genesis of the youth chart so a lot of the anomalies that you're seeing between the youth chart and the adult chart are remnants of the fact that this chart is actually set up to be run with longer arrows and lighter poundage bows the second thing to consider here these short female archers that you're concerned about in the range of 28 to 35 pounds being very tricky to tune Half a pound can make a big difference. Half a pound can make a big difference on those kinds of tunes. So, we'll go into some depth on the uh, Facebook thing over the weekend and get you some more information on that. So, thanks for that, Pear.
1: Yeah, I had a uh, teammate track and field named Pear. He was from Sweden as well, like Pear here. Yeah. Um, he was kind of a wiener. He always had a pulled hamstring or something. <laughs> so, but, Pear, I won't hold it against you. All right. Thanks for the question.
0: Thank you from Sveria, presumably, Mr. Bankson. Okay, Chad Simpson um, is asking an interesting question as we get into outdoor season and particularly 3D. Uh, Known versus unknown yardage in the ASA. What are our thoughts on the direction it'll go long-term? How will that affect the products coming to market? Seems to be a topic that has a wide range of opinions. I wanted to get a manufacturer's side of it, and that comes from Chad Simpson. Uh, Good question, Chad.
1: Yeah, and if you want the manufacturer's opinion, it's always going to be we think, both is great the more the merrier yeah we don't care yeah we like we like having more we want people shooting arrows we yes. want
0: people enjoying archery because guess what if more people enjoy archery more arrows get sold Yeah. so from a manufacturer standpoint it's like somebody asked me the other day and I think they were trying to I don't know if they were trying to make a point or not but they're like what do you think of barebow and I'm like barebow's great barebow shooters shoot arrows yeah love them so, yeah, who cares? So from a manufacturer's standpoint, that's the answer. Now, if you want the big cat's standpoint you want my standpoint, I'll, I'll tell you what I think. You want to go first? Sure, I, I'll go first. I think that the idea that 3D archery is hunting simulation has been a sham for many years because I don't know any animals that have vitals in the areas <laughs> that are high-scoring zones on a 3D animal. So don't tell me that's hunting practice, number one. Number two. Um, it's great that people get out there and enjoy shooting 3D it is fantastic sport it's great camaraderie it is it's good for archery it's good for individuals what I do want to see is people more people enjoying it and I think quite frankly it's it's hard to get the skills it's hard work to get the skills and if you want to be competitive you've got to spend a lot of time and money you got to spend thousands of dollars on having targets that you can look at every single day to be able to get the skill to get that unmarked distance down pat you know that half yard that you need to be able to nail that 12 ring or whatever 14 ring in some competitions right so my personal perspective is anything that opens it up to better and more participation is a good idea when I see Brady Ellison show up at an ASA tournament and finish mid-pack with a compound bow in between recurve tournaments, I think that's good for the sport. Mm-hmm. So, my attitude on it is, you know, the K50 or whatever they call it, the known classes, Known right? pro now. Yeah, okay. I like it. I like it because it's, it's more, it opens the door to more people coming in. And if you think about it, where is the growth happening in archery right now? It's happening in target archery. And target archery, generally speaking, means known distances and if you look at what levi morgan the great levi has done with the opa that big tournament people, mm-hmm. that's known distances isn't it
1: known distance and even a little reference to amat so yeah which that was one of the the more fun tournaments i shot last
0: year you know so so i'd like to get your side on this
1: um well first off i think from a manufacturer's standpoint in terms of paying contingency now this is especially hard on a couple bow manufacturers you want to go all in on known pro and open pro and pay 25 grand if you have both winners that's going to be very hard for a company to sustain um from a financial side they might want to do it that's cool I, I have a pretty good idea how much money they make and i don't think that's sustainable so uh, <laughs> i feel like the sport has to have one clear-cut pro class and i think the class participation will determine that itself um, that's, you know, I, I can't see, I can't see unknown being the way forward because I think participation in unknown will always fall behind in known. And I think that's where it's going to go. I mean, it's, uh, the, comp- the 3d component of 3d, what separates it from OPA is going to be that there's nothing to aim at. There's no no colored dot or aiming reference on the target. Still going to be knowing the targets, and that's hard. Having shot K fifty, which is you know essentially open pro now, or excuse me, known pro now. Uh, knowing where to aim and and knowing how to aim on a three D target is the challenge. So, um, me, it's an archery contest. It's a it's a shooting contest. You know, we're are there to see who is the best shooter, and. It's easy to argue against that and say, well, 3D is a historically unknown game, and there's two components of it, one judging and two shooting. And I'll agree with that too. But if you look at the success of OPA, you look at the success of an event like Reading, you look at the massive decline in numbers in the IBO, which is strictly unknown, I think it's going to go the way of known yardage. So, And it's unbelievable to me that IBO doesn't, open up a known yardage class. Unbelievable.
0: So the market is going to end up deciding this whole thing.
1: I think so. And, and if ASA wants to continue with two classes, that's probably okay. But,
0: but the money's going to go to one or the yeah, other.
1: Yeah, manufacturer support is eventually going to choose sides. That's, I'm pretty confident in that.
0: And typically, manufacturer support is going to go to the side with the most participants. The side with the most participants and the
1: side where their biggest guns are.
0: Robert Swenson has a question. It's an arrow question. Um, so we may or may not have the right answer for you right this second, but Robert bought some Carbon 1 500s last year for Outdoor when he was shooting an Ultra Elite. Right before Indoor, he moved up to a Podium X 40. So he's saying the bows are the same poundage, but he's shooting spirals on the podium. Um, Due to the more aggressive cam, his arrow programs are recommending either a 450 or dropping the poundage on the podium, which is a better option. A lower poundage with the Five Hundred. A 450 cut and spined correctly or 400 left long and spined correctly with maybe adding a little more poundage. He usually runs 50 to 52 pounds during indoor. Uh, Thanks for the answers and the podcast. Thanks for the question, Robert. So he wants
1: to know if he goes with a 500 at the poundage he normally runs. 450. Fifty? what was it, 450? 450
0: by, you know... Um, but
1: pick up the poundage a little bit?
0: Uh, actually... Oh, cut and spine right. Cut and spine the 450, spine it right on the mark.
1: Okay, so it'd be a 500, drop the poundage, 450 with the poundage he's at. Right. Or, or a 400, 400 a little long. A little long. Little
0: long. Mm. Okay, so uh, part it's of like, the answer to a question like this for, for the general public is, uh, if you have the budget for it, get the right size arrow. If you're planning to go up and wait for outdoor competition you know, closer to the 60 pound limit for world archery, for example. Yeah. Then maybe you want to go for that uh, 400 left long and spine correctly with a little more poundage. On the other hand, because you can always cut it down a little bit. Yeah. On the other hand, um, you've got 500s right now. An outdoor season um, is upon us. And you may decide that you want to keep shooting your 500s and take your poundage down a little bit. Your spirals will make up for it. You'll end up with no net loss. Mm Mm-hmm. And I could argue that, that modern bows don't care if you crank them down a scotch. Yeah. I, oh, yeah. If you back the pound job, I don't think it's a huge issue. Because back in my day, you used to have to crank them all the way down to have the best efficiency. <laughs> yeah,
1: I haven't, uh, I haven't bothered subscribing to that theory with the way the the Hoyt Pro Lock pocket works. You can back it out, and it doesn't really matter. You still have six points of contact on each limb and holds them all in there nice and tight. But, you know, I also just, I build the bow to be at 58 pounds, and I keep it max at 58 pounds, and I pretty much know if it's more or less than that that something is off on the way I build my strings or cables. So by the time I get done mapping the bow, it all works out. Anyways, back to the.
0: Here's what I think. Yeah. And at, at the risk of being shot down by the big cat, shoot your 500s. Because the spiral is also going to be more demanding on you, from the standpoint of staying, you know, in your anchor and lightening it up isn't going to hurt from the standpoint of your form.
1: Yeah, that's not a that's not a bad way to start, especially because out, outdoors in the wind, you can get worn out a little quicker. Holding in the wind, trying to hold longer, essentially um, dropping the poundage a little bit at first. Number one, it's free, and Two, if you intend you know it'll it'll help you figure out where you're at outdoors uh, if you intend to crank up the poundage and try to get closer to 60 which is great if you can do it then then go buy the the 400s you know you're already there but but going yet. straight
0: going straight to 60 pounds and a and a spiral cam yeah that's a, a little demanding
1: yeah I, it and what he's got right now will work pull a turn off the limb bolts and Shoot them for now.
0: Hope that helps, Robert. Uh Vinny Bleakley, our friend in Oz, has changed his stabilizer setup from Doinker and B Stinger on his uh Doinker on his compound and B Stinger on his recurve to Z Flex stabilizers. Uh thirty three fifteen for the compound, twenty seven and five inch extension, and twelves for the recurves. Uh, oh, this is just a comment. He says the Z Flex seems to fly under the radar. Seriously, good value. Top quality, well done. Can't rate them high enough. Well, thank you, Vinny. Glad you like them. Yeah, I've Sorry, I started reading that thinking it was a question, but I like him that myself. was a product endorsement instead.
1: Well, I'm going to go ahead and endorse another product. You know what I think is a, 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 he says that's a seriously good value. I think it's a seriously outrageous value, the new Microflex.
0: You know, um, that was something we did on purpose. Yeah,
1: they're selling for like a hundred bucks for the main rod at Lancaster. Yeah,
0: and that was a deliberate choice that we made to give up profit on that part to be able to give people a good entry-level product, but it's very high quality, high-end stabilizer at a very affordable price. We wanted – look, everybody, any monkey can make a $700 stabilizer, all right? Now, I'm not telling you that the MicroFlex is the equivalent of a $700 <laughs> stabilizer. But it's not good for the sport, for people to feel like they've got to shell out almost a 1,000 bucks for a stabilizer system. It's just yeah, not. Yeah,
1: by the time we get through weights and everything.
0: So my goal with the MicroFlex was make an affordable stabilizer that's really good quality and that we you know are proud to put the Easton name on, and that's what we've got now.
1: And the weights will carry over to any of our other stabilizers as yeah, the weight system
0: so. works. It's interchangeable. Yeah. You can use the quarter 20 weights if you have those legacy weights, or you can use the 516 24 pancake weights. It's all good. So um, didn't mean to plug a product here, but that was I you. did. Okay, I meant to. Well, the Microflex is is going very well, and I think it's because it's got that great balance of price and performance. Yep. Uh, Joe Moyer uh, says that uh, he's coming to Salt Lake City for indoor nationals. Other than a Hoyt factory tour, anything else you can suggest? Red Rock? Red Rock's pretty good. Squatter's Pub? You're talking restaurants? No, but he said anything else I can suggest. He said he'd love to get a look behind the scenes at Easton as well, and I'm sure we're going to set something up. Here's the problem, though. Uh, this time of year, Easton runs four 10-hour days uh, and then a night shift for each each day of the week. But nothing on Friday. But nothing. On, well, not nothing, but not much on Friday. Right. Friday is the day when the maintenance crew goes out there and works on equipment and, and other stuff happens. So um, Friday is the day that most people are going to be at Indoor Nationals in a position to do a tour of Easton. More than welcome to come and do a tour, but you're not going to see a whole lot going on.
1: Yeah, we can still explain and show and oh, yeah. yada yada, but you won't. We'll
0: get Corey to do it.
1: Yeah, you won't see it.
0: It won't be the same. It Won't be as noisy. That's true. All right. Um. So yeah, there's plenty to do in Salt Lake City for indoor nationals. I'm, I'm Squatters Pub. Run May- up, run up to Park City.
1: <laughs> yeah, Park City would be nice. I mean, it. Yeah. Twenty-five minutes away.
0: Run up to Park City. That's make what I would do. Sure,
1: just make sure your score gets mailed in at the right time. Yeah.
0: Speaking of mailing in scores. I'm not wild about the format of indoor nationals. I'm not
1: either, but I'm also appreciative of not having to be on the road for another weekend. Also
0: the level of participation is pretty good.
1: Yeah. If indoor nationals was more than a hundred miles from me, I probably wouldn't go.
0: Wouldn't be worth your while.
1: Yeah, I, I wouldn't go.
0: Brian Thacker says that he loves the podcast and has a quick question. He noticed a trend in Vegas that a lot of shooters are loading up their front bars with 10 to 20 ounces of weight. Thoughts on this? Thanks. Uh, thank you, Brian. Yep. So, yeah, Brian, you're right. Um, it's We predicted this, Steve. You and I have talked about this for, for 40 podcasts on mm-hmm. and off, and it's a function of what are the top guys doing, and eventually what happens is people want to be Steve Anderson, Rio Wild, Jesse Broadwater, and those are the guys who've been shooting the heavyweight. Well,
1: Jesse is the opposite. He's very light.
0: Sorry, yeah, I know right.
1: you're just throwing him out as a, you know, a name. But, um, yeah, you. If you look down that line, the majority of guys are running probably 15 plus, and on the front. Yes, and there's a reason for that. I mean, it, it, the heavier that bar is, if you can hustle it, the harder it is to move away from
0: where you're aiming it. And if it's stiff enough.
1: Yeah, you got to have a stiff enough bar to do so. But the, the issue is a lot of people can't hold that kind of weight. So if you can, great. If you can't, you're far better off holding up what you can because if you can't park it, you're never going to be able to shoot it. So my, what I mean by that is if you, if you can't get it to stop, you know if it's too heavy and it's just going to wave around like a lightsaber, then you need to drop some weight until you can actually get it to stop or you know be predictable. But the guys who shoot a lot, they can, they can make that happen, and guys with strength can make that happen. Um, it's even more favorable in the wind, which is why the majority of those guys who you see doing it are probably the majority of the guys who you're going to see on outdoor podiums as well.
0: We have been tasked um, by our management with making some videos in the next few weeks, uh, Steve and I, uh, to sort of show people The cause and effect of different stabilizer options and different amounts of weight on the stabilizer. And we're basically storyboarding all that stuff right now. So if there's something you'd like to see in that video series, we're more than happy to uh, take your suggestions. Uh, You can email those to us at podcast at EastonTP.com. Because we're going to make a serious effort to try to do some more instructional video content on the Easton website. And uh, so we'd sure like to know what it is you folks would like to hear or see rather. Um, Brian Heron, this is a good one, and it's a good one for you, Steve, in particular. What goes through your head during a shoot-off or other very important shot? I had a (laughs) shoot-off to get into a gold medal match recently, and I was wondering how other people handle it.
1: I'd be interested to hear what Brian was thinking about.
0: he didn't tell us yeah
1: he didn't tell us um you know what it's uh it's different i think every time you step up to the line and you've got that big arrow sometimes you're thinking you know i need to do this this minute part of my execution that's what your focus is
0: um i really like that one i've been in a position to have to shoot arrows under pressure even recently um And all I can think about, all I force myself to think about is execution and a very, like you said, a a specific aspect of execution. Yeah.
1: So there's that. I mean, (laughs) there's the other side of it where you're thinking about who's behind you, who's cheering, who you're hearing, the voices you'll hear because you'll hear someone say, you know, come on, George, or come on, Steve, or whatever. Um,
0: Sometimes the countdown if the clock is running.
1: Yeah, there's that. Uh, You'll hear depending on if you shoot first or second you'll pretty much know what your opponent did you know you'll you'll see them react or hear a reaction from behind you so it's it's hard to block everything out and you're not going to you're just not going to but if you can try to just focus on that one minute part of your execution or your shot that's really all you can ask for the other thing I try to think is don't over aim I mean I can step up on a Vegas face or a Fita face, and without thinking about it, I can shoot three inside-out Xs, you know? But then when I'm sitting there trying, which it's good to, at your local club, grab some people and do some one-arrow shoot-offs with regularity. Exactly. Um, And when I'm trying, it it just gets harder. And I'll shoot huge 10s or 9s, you know? So it's... uh, The last thing you want to do is over-aim and try to be too precise. You kind of just want to make a normal feeling shot try to keep the tempo normal um depending on if you got 40 seconds or 20 you know let down if it feels bad so there's some gamesmanship involved in it too yeah you know whether you go first or second and i'm gonna say if i'm shooting at a place where there's a lot of inexperienced shooters i'm gonna choose to go second i'm gonna let that other person you know have to prove it first and then then i'll know what i have to beat
0: i like to get up there first and let them look at a 10
1: yeah yeah that's and that's uh one way of going about it but you know say if i'll just be honest i've told linda you should always go second you know a lot of times you see some shooters in that class chuck a big eight when it counts and that's not to say it's going to happen every time but it's more frequent than in my class so you know if you if you go and you're first you think oh i gotta shoot a good solid x it's a little harder to shoot that good solid x but yeah. if you step up going oh they have a mid nine you know a, a week 10 or a, a just out nine wins that's pretty easy to make happen so some gamesmanship involved and it depends on where you're at and who you're shooting against
0: and let me pick up on something that steve mentioned a moment ago Bradley, and that is that um you need to practice this you can't just step up there and You know, expect to perform the way you want to. You need to practice it. So, one suggestion I have is something I do myself, which is I conclude every single practice session with one shoot off arrow. It's a good idea, and I, I, you know, I call it a shoot off arrow in my head, and I execute it like a shoot off arrow. And you know, you try to visualize the scenario. You you, now that you've been in it. Now that you've been in this situation, you can visualize it much more readily. Mm -hmm. So, that's a suggestion. Yep.
1: There's. Going back to the gamesmanship for a minute I watched some guys Some very top level shooters in Neem See how they would handle One arrow shoot off Because historically I haven't been great in them um, I picked up a little something And I did exactly What this guy had done In my next one arrow shoot off And it worked for me you know, I think it uh, Changed the scenery just enough For my opponent And gave me the the right tempo and rhythm to make my shot work the best as well so that's all okay. i'm gonna
0: say well i think that uh, was a good simple question that led to some good conversation briley and we thank you for it russ sharman from
1: my home club oh yeah yeah okay Nampa, idaho
0: Nampa bow chiefs okay russ sharman is asking redding arrow choice
1: not the Fat Boys, Russ. Don't do the Fat Boys.
0: 28-inch draw, 55 pounds, AC Pro Field 420s. Yes. With 120 grain point or Fat Boy 400s no. with 80 or 100 grain points. Redding is too windy historically. Is he going to be able to get Super Drive 23s in time for Redding? Uh,
1: potentially, yeah.
0: Yeah, but the AC Pro will still kick its butt.
1: Yeah, I, I don't Pro want field. diameter when I'm at the top of the canyon shooting 63 yards at some bears. Shoot Pro Fields, Russ. yeah. There's enough, there's enough wind at Redding that a, a breath of wind on an 80-yard target is really going to move that fat boy.
0: And Russ says, hi, Steve. Tried to say hi to you at Vegas, but always missed my opportunity. So It's funny, you know. Um, I was just talking to Bob Destin today uh, from BCY. Bob. And um, it, was, it occurred to me I've seen Bob at three different events and just been able to wave at him, right, but never had a chance to talk. And he was always so busy, and I was busy. Saw him at ATA show, saw him at Neem, and saw him at Vegas, and we never got to speak. And I picked up the phone, and there he was. But go figure. Anyway, yeah, one of those things. Matt Hooper. uh, Matt's a podcast fan. Thank you, Matt. He's shooting carbon ones for some outdoor target, and he hunts with carbon injections. They seem to be similar shafts. I heard Deep Six will be phased out. Any truth to this? Can carbon ones use Deep Six components? Thanks. Uh, No, no truth to that. Deep Six, in fact, is expanding and and getting more popular, more broadhead companies are making Deep Six broadheads and it's a big deal. I wonder um, if
1: that's because we changed the nomenclature to four millimeter if people have yeah, that Yeah, you know,
0: that, that could be, you know, that whole four millimeter, five millimeter, six millimeter yeah. uh, nomenclature. But deep and six is its own deal. And you know, and
1: deep six is four millimeter. Sorry about that. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> um, can carbon ones use deep six components? They can. They can? I didn't know that. Well, could. I, yeah, I guess they can. Sure they can. Like a head insert kind of thing?
1: Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Okay.
0: So there you go. Um, carbon one's a pretty strong arrow I, I you know your injection is actually more suited to hunting yeah. but um, yeah so that does work uh, Linda uh, Kozakowski asks what's the best type of fletching to use feathers or veins for an indoor setup what would you suggest for a new outdoor target archer to use for an outdoor arrow setup so Lindsay um, you didn't specify compound or recurve but I will mm. tell you that in general, indoors, feathers are more forgiving. Veins hold up better over time.
1: Yeah. If you're recurve, it's feathers. Yes.
0: If you're shooting indoors with a recurve and you are in a position, forgive me for putting it this way, but if you're in a position to ask this question, you're going to be better off with feathers. Now, if you're a top-level shooter, you're going to probably be shooting your outdoor arrows with spin wings on them. So that's a whole different ballgame. But... Um, and that's if you're a recurve shooter. If you're a compound shooter, again, I think feathers might be the answer. If you're in a position to really, you know, need to know this kind of thing, outdoors, um, veins over feathers.
1: Yes, in all aspects. Yeah. And if she's asking about an outdoor arrow setup for a beginner, uh, that carbon one we were just talking about for the specific, if you're specifically looking for an arrow shaft, that one would be a great setup for the beginning art yeah
0: nice and affordable carries good energy and is um did i mention affordable
1: yeah has a smaller diameter it's yeah not, it's not big at all It'd yeah perfectly no, fine it's, for it's,
0: anybody. i'll tell you what that is that is <laughs> the trouble with the carbon one is we've got above it four different products but for a lot of companies a carbon one would be a flagship arrow
1: yeah you that's know true uh
0: sterling who's a regular uh why do compounds and traditional bows have different types of sites
1: what if he's talking about the actual sight reticle, or you know, a pin versus, a, say, a tunnel, or
0: yeah? Because it is kind of a tough question um, without a little more context. But let's just say that um, Sterling's asking about the the scope on a compound, as an example. You know, compound is a aiming sport. Compound is is more of an aiming sport and less of an execution sport. Naturally, execution matters, but with the ability to focus on the target and see what you want to see um, the advantage of the scope is there for the compound shooter for precision aiming for traditional shooters well serious traditional bows don't have any sight at all of course <laughs> you know they're using point of aim or they're using some other string walking methods, you know something along those lines but for um for recurve bows we can't have magnification we can't have a rear sight and so we, we keep that front sight simple and we focus on execution. So hopefully that more or less covers what you're looking for there, Sterling. Uh, Steve Snyder. Peep twist exclamation point multiple times. The strings exclamation point multiple times. It actually says the stings. Yeah, I noticed, but I, I figured I'd code, side edit that. Yeah. It's all good. I knew <laughs> what he meant. Yeah, I'm buying twist like Dorothy in Kansas, and I'm tired of tapping. <laughs> okay, that's all he said. Yeah. So. Uh, what are tips for peep twist, or dealing with it? Um, we one, have talked one about one by good strings, find by a good reputable strings, builder, break not them, in. the cheapest guy, break them in.
1: Yeah, take about fifty shots. Any adjustments you need to make, make them from the bottom cam. Shoot them a few times to let those adjustments take place. Actually, move their way through the string, uh, then adjust more from the bottom cam again if necessary, and shoot some more again. And once you get it squared away, get your peep or excuse me your D loop. Positioned where it needs to be, meaning around the string, and uh, shoot it a little bit, and it should be fine. That's if you have a good, well-built string, All right. and, and you don't have something served backwards.
0: Michael fluid says, uh, "Peep height." Having trouble getting it in a perfect spot for close and longer ranges. You got to yeah. float your anchor a little bit, don't you?
1: Yeah, a lot of people have this problem. So, especially somewhere like Reading, you know where which is really funny because there are two shots over there are six shots total over 63 yards at reading but people will spend probably 60 percent of their time practicing those shots 80 yards 100 yards i think tim gillingham only practices at 100 yards for (laughs) reading he's he's always making the comment tim and i usually shoot in the same group and he's always making the comment i hit this son of a b you know 10 out of 10 times at 101 yards, I come here. He's always really excited to jump on the line and be the first to shoot, and he doesn't watch the wind. So it's good stuff. But Tim's probably one of the most fun guys to shoot with. Anyhow, um, my getting back to the peep height thing, you you should set your peep height for where the majority of your shots are going to be taking place. So throw away outliers like 104 for Redding. And get, get those out of there. And your average comes to about 55, or excuse me, I think it's 48 yards, something like that. So, I pretty much roll in there with my same outdoor setup, which is, you know, a comfortable peep height for 50 meters. And people don't always understand how to set this. So, get your bow sided in at 50 meters. And if you feel like you're scrunched or you're stretching, adjust the peep up or down. And you're, you're going to have to side in again but it's not going to move you that much. The scope's not going to move that much to the point where now you feel like the peep's way off again. So uh, do that one time. Um, for me personally, I'd much rather be scrunched and uncomfortable on the short stuff because those are generally easier shots and more comfortable on the stuff longer. So yeah, my anchor might have to float just a touch at say a hundred yard shot. But again, I make two of those the whole time at ready. Mm-hmm. They aren't worth more if you hit them. You know, I can promise you that. I've hit like seven out of eight the last four years, and I still got the same amount of points for those as I did for hitting the four-yard butterfly.
0: Which is something to keep in mind in field archery. Most people give up more arrows, more points on the bunnies than they give up on longer shots.
1: Yeah, in world field, 100%. Um, so set your peep height accordingly. Um, set it around the average distance you're going to be shooting. And... If you're going to be uncomfortable somewhere, make that uncomfortability on your shorter shots.
0: All right. Sounds good. You know, this reminds me of a good friend I've got. uh, He's a Japanese Paralympian and um, used to be a MotoGP rider, and he lost the use of one of his arms. So back when Compound shot four distances, you know, 90, 70, 50, and 30, he actually had two bows because yeah. of the, the setup that he had didn't allow floating the anchor at all. Mm-hmm. So he had a bow setup, one bow set up for the short distances and one bow setup up for the longer distances. And uh, I'm not suggesting that that would be a solution to this, but it does tell you that if you can't float your anchor that you've got to find some other means.
1: Yeah, and there are there are options there so okay Now you, I have thought about two bows at a place like Reading. One with big arrows, one with small arrows. But one,
0: a big one for the for bu- for the for the close targets?
1: Yeah, but I think there's a rule. I, I haven't dug into this, and it's not worth doing anyways. I think there's a rule. You can only switch bows one time per day in NFAA.
0: So I'm, I'm sure that I'm going to reach a few people on this podcast who remember uh, a good friend of mine, Rod Hoover, who was a guy from Pennsylvania. A, ca- a colorful character. A very colorful character. And... Um, He shot a different arrow for 30 meters than for all the other distances. He had a separate string and plunger. And so for 30 meters, he would actually pull out the aluminums and set up a different string and plunger on his recurve just for 30. And goodness knows, back in the day, he was the man. So (laughs) it worked for him. Yeah. So you know, there's lots of ways to lots of ways to solve these problems. You
1: skin the cat a many a different way. Well,
0: I showed up at World Field one time with uh, three arrows in my quiver that had feathers on them for the bunnies.
1: Mm-hmm. Get a little more control. Yeah, well, you know that was the plan.
0: It didn't work out too well, but <laughs> that was the plan. Yeah. I mean, we're talking X tens with like three inch feathers.
1: I always think that someday I'm going to go to World Field or you know uh, a World Field event, and and shoot a 23 on bunnies, but. I've never, I've never taken Frustrating, the Frustrating, aren't they? To, never. Well, you know what, bunnies. Um, I destroyed them in Dublin. I was killing the bunnies.
0: Well, you were the Weltmeister. I mean, what are you going to do?
1: Well, I did miss one in the gold medal final, but didn't matter. Yeah, I shot a five on one of them, but whatever. Um, I
0: remember when five was the best you could get. Yeah,
1: well, you know, going back to that theory. And this is not part of the question, so I'm sorry we've gotten off base, but I'm not sorry. No. Uh, <laughs> you know, Dave Cousins once spent like three weeks. It's probably a week, I don't know, trying to find a 23, whether it was aluminum, 23-12, 23-14, 23 or a fat boy of all three different sizes, something that would hit in the same horizontal plane as his Pro Tour's. And he wanted to use them for the bunny. He could figure out, you know, he could make a pencil mark on his sight tape. But he didn't want to have to go, okay, I need to move 25 clicks to the left and then have to remember to go back and count clicks and yada, yada, yada. So he said, you know, he fletched them left helical, right helical, straight, two-inch fletch, four-inch fletch. He tried everything. Never could get it to work. So he's like, but you know what? By the end of the week, I had shot the bunny so many times I was going to dominate it no matter where I went. So it's kind of a matter of, of practice, you know. Focus, yeah. yeah,
0: yep, okay, good stuff there. Um, Christopher is asking, thoughts on straight offset versus helical and degrees of offset for both? And again, folks, when you, when you drop a question like this, context is useful. Let us know if you're shooting compound or recurve or, or what context, but we can give you your general thoughts on this. And generally speaking, for compound bow, um straight offset is the way to go not necessarily helical in my opinion steve
1: i'm a helical guy okay but you know it's uh
0: i just try to keep it simple
1: i've never measured degrees i don't i don't know how to do that or care enough to do that um so
0: they both work would be a good answer
1: yeah really it's a matter of making sure you have enough
0: fletching on there to control the arrow and and, uh, and that you can keep the foot of the vein normal to the surface of the arrow.
1: Exactly, yeah. Because on a big aluminum, you can really crank that helical. But then you, you run into the issue of clearance, which may be a problem for some, depending on how their bow delivers the arrow. Um, and on the X10 or Pro Tour, you, you can't put that much on it. The other thing I've heard people say is, well, do you shoot a bear shaft to see which way it naturally rotates? Nope, I don't do that either. On an indoor shaft, I do a left helical, and on an outdoor shaft, I do a left helical because that's the clamp I own. On an indoor, I do a left helical because it gives me more clearance over my finger and cables, and I've said that a few times on here. But, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not looking for a natural rotation of the shaft because one might go right and the other one might go left. I don't know. You know, Maybe, maybe they'll all spin naturally to the right. Um, How would you know? Well, you'd shoot it at such a close range that you could try to identify which way it was clocking, and then you'd move back a little bit and see if you could further tell. But it's uh, it's hard. I I, I don't know.
0: I'm, I'm, I'm putting that in the voodoo bucket. I don't think it matters.
1: There are a lot of people who, who ask me if, if that matters. And I think there's a lot of people who subscribed to it, and a lot of those people I beat on a regular basis. There
0: you go. Okay. <laughs> Tony Millsap is asking, "What's the best fletching for X Uh Arguably, Tony, um, and, and we're talking for outdoor. Um, it's going to be some kind of a mylar vein, curled mylar vein. Whether it's a spin wing, uh, one of Brady Ellison's spider veins, uh, What of those things that I shoot. You know the ones, the the ones that Dayon Sitar makes.
1: That's the spider vein.
0: It is now. I'm, I'm shooting the ones that were in between. I can't remember because I'm too lazy <laughs> to refletch. Um. Uh, whatever it doesn't excess wings excess wings wings. yep Uh, I've seen people do well with gas pro veins I think gas pro and ellie veins you better be on your you better be on your game to make those work right because they they really don't steer as much as a spin wing and I'm just going to point back to one fact if the Koreans found something better they'd be using it and they're using spin wings and that's all I'm going to say about that Brady's doing great with those spider veins though yeah um Harrison is asking our thoughts on the new FMJ match arrows. Ooh, shiny. No, the FMJ match is a arrow that's designed for basically great durability and accuracy.
1: It's a great arrow in a Stramit target butt or if you're shooting a straw bale or something like that. Something
0: something abusive. something non-modern. 10 test. Edgerton Mats. Yep. Uh Stramit. All of those 14th century target materials. The FMJ match is designed to handle.
1: Mm-hmm. Pulls easy. Doesn't sand down like a carbon arrow would.
0: Yep. Any carbon arrow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, relatively very safe and uh, very accurate. Spine around the shaft in those things is awesome because of the yeah. synergy of the materials. Yeah, the aluminum nature there so yeah. really helps. And so. the last question for the uh, for the Facebook page here is George Clark with also the most cryptic question, X-27 setup. Well. That's all it says. That's all it says. And
1: I'll tell you this, George. Tecmachov and Clark. You can cut it from the front. You can cut it from the back. But don't cut it from the middle.
0: There you go. I like that one. Don't cut it from the middle. Nah, the X-27 setup.
1: Um, don't, don't cut it shorter than 31 inches to start. Try a 250 or a 300. 90 percent of people are going to fall in uh into one of those two point weights and longer than 31 and give it a a good size vein four inch plastic vein or a four inch feather
0: after the last podcast uh, at podcast we got a follow-up question from or comment really from robert stockton um two important parts we missed when we talked about vegas in the last podcast uh good music in the arena okay um well, World Archery had a producer to do the music, so thank you for. I'm sure that they'll be thankful to that, hear that. That's
1: not a. That's not something that it, it goes unnoticed, but it's not, um, you know, it's 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 not, not something we talk about, but it doesn't go unnoticed. What I should say, because in Neem, they played the song from the Disney movie Moana, which is a very you know Disney type song, very.
0: The you know, the lifting. French always pick some weird stuff. Yeah, the next one, you
1: almost just gave our podcast an explicit I said right stuff. There. The next song was like a screamo emo song, and uh, I thought it was really odd. But, you know, yes. that's always, that's Neem.
0: So. And they play it over and over again. Yeah, they, they have like a. Like the theme song of the event. Yeah. And it, they play it over and over again.
1: I'll say at Neem, there's like a 50 song playlist on repeat. In Shanghai two years ago, I think they had eight songs repeat. And about three of them were were country music songs that weren't good. You know? I mean, I don't not like country music, but I don't like anything that many times.
0: All right. So, speaking of music, I'll never forget the music that was played at my second World Indoor, which was the first time i have been to Turkey. This is 1997 World Indoor in Istanbul. It was in March of 1997. They played Christmas music. <laughs> over and over and over again. And my claim to fame for that event was they had some kind of a malfunction uh, during the award ceremony. And the French team was on the podium. And so I led the French team in an acapella singing of... The you
1: led the team. I did. Nice.
0: And they, they seemed to enjoy it, so it worked out well. I'm impressed. <laughs> well, you'd be really impressed if you knew just how bloody and awful the words of the, <laughs> the song are. It's, it's the most vicious anthem in the world.
1: I, I think maybe Mexico's is like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff.
0: Yeah, blood and guts and all sorts of stuff. But yeah, it's a great little tune. However... <laughs> <laughs> it's christmas music dude over and oh, in march in march it was uh, awful it was just awful
1: i think maybe they they thought
0: what's western whatever they,
1: yeah they probably thought ahead of time hey let's get some good popular english music and it was maybe december when they thought this so they went and downloaded you know the most popular songs Somebody was
0: downloading music back then they went and bought 97 they went and they bought went and a, a bought CD. The
1: cd and the that was you know most popular at the time in the English section. Yeah. And it was December, so it was Christmas yeah. music.
0: Guarantee you that's something like that is what happened. Goodness knows what a job they've done since. Yeah. I mean, you know, arguably right now, your gold standard for tournaments is the Turkish Federation. It's right up there. Come on. Seriously, you got to give them credit.
1: I would say.
0: Hmm. I heard you say the other day the Colombians throw a heck of a party.
1: Uh, well, we, yeah, we were talking about. <laughs> I was on the phone with Rio and we were talking about uh, the World Games this year cuz Rio and I were on the World Games team in 2013. And that was and that in was Cali. In, it was in Cali, Colombia. And we were talking about how the World Games will be in Wroclaw, Poland this year. Yeah. And we've been to Poland, we've been to Wroclaw, you know, yeah. three times for World Cups the last 5 years. And I said, you know, Rio Rio commented that he's not all convinced that poland will be able to match what colombia did because it was colombia was insane like we you know we walked in on an opening ceremony it was like going to the olympic
0: opening ceremony sure the
1: closest thing a compound archer has ever felt to it Yep, Uh, that's what the
0: purpose of the world games by the way is to get you you know in that same mode
1: it's put on by the ioc for non-olympic events so we walk in. No, not know. to be
0: pedantic, but it's actually put on by the World Games organizing body, which is endorsed by the IOC. Okay. But anyway.
1: Yeah, IOC flag flies at the yep, stadium. Yep, yep, so, right. <laughs> um, so we walk in, you know, and they, they gave us the U.S. Olympic jackets from 2012. So I have one of the Polo Ralph Lauren made in China, U.S. Olympic jackets. <laughs> but it's a prized possession I remember possession when that was a big mine. deal. Yeah, I think it's awesome. Um. so now I just gotta you know get back to my fighting weight so I fit in it again but that's another story so anyhow we walk in there's 55,000 people screaming their heads off and it was cool so I don't know if Poland will quite be able to do it the way that Colombia did it because the Colombians know how to throw a party
0: you know what we got when I shot in the world games from the NAA probably
1: a track jacket uh, or something. a
0: nylon track jacket and Matthews John Dudley, when he worked at Matthews, had the shirts made because they didn't have shirts to issue. So, yeah, he had the shirts made. Thank goodness for John.
1: Yeah, my shirt was uh, USA Archery screwed the pooch and forgot to order mine. So they did it like the day before I left, and they sent it with Mel Nichols, and it was a coach's jersey, you know, said coach on the back, and they put a big white box screen print over that, and then wrote my name on the white box.
0: I know that... Uh, it was... I,
1: I, they wanted me to pay for it. And I'm sure <laughs> you could imagine what I did there.
0: No, what an insult. Holy crap. That's really awful. But, you know, speaking of awful, um, have you seen the new jerseys?
1: Um, I've,
0: <laughs> I've seen them, yes. I think we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Robert Stockton's, uh, the second part of Robert Stockton's be wearing one a lot. Yeah. The second part of Robert, uh, man, what were they thinking? All right. Oh. never mind. Robert stock people will see this in Shanghai, right? That's the first time it'll be the, seen the light of day.
1: The only way it could be worse is if we had matching shorts,
0: that would be worse,
1: which I think is actually offensive.
0: Robert Stockton's second part of the question here. Ida Ramon getting cut off in the shoot off. Uh, I know George was all over it while well, it happened. Do you think it affected her since she still had ample time after the whistle was blown? I don't think we'll ever know. Yeah, I mean, you did you did catch
1: the judges and let them know, so that was good. But um, the damage was done. Yeah, it had broken her rhythm, and she was waiting because she's trying to set herself up. You know, either with visualization or just so people know what
0: happened. Ida is standing out there with a yeah. bow, with an arrow in her bow. She takes time to shoot her shot, right? Yes, yeah, she and she's she might visualizing take 30
1: seconds between shots.
0: Exactly, but they didn't realize they, whoever they are, didn't realize. I think the judges on the on the floor there signaled the DOS they that they do. were done. Yep. they didn't realize she had another arrow to shoot. I, I knew it because I was watching her, mm-hmm. and I'm like, "What the heck's going on here?" You know, I, I didn't snap at him, but I told the DOS reset that clock, and so we got the clock reset. But um, it threw her off. She had 37 seconds left on the clock, I think.
1: Yeah, I remember looking up and there was like thirty nine, and so there was tons of time, but But she was turned around looking at like what what do I, you know, what's going on,
0: and now the truth is I don't think Ada could have beaten her opponent. Her opponent was shooting really, really well.
1: Yeah, I didn't, uh, I didn't see scores. You know, all I saw was what happened. I didn't see any results. As they played out.
0: Yeah. You never want to see something like that happen. And and you know, I don't blame the judges. They're not used to the foibles of world archery competitors necessarily. They generally do a really good job in Vegas. It was unfortunate, but you know, not I don't think that was the it wasn't the nail in the coffin. It was just one of those things that happens once in a while. Yeah. So Yeah. All right. What do you got coming up besides indoor nationals? I don't know. Oh, you got you going to um Cincinnati, aren't you?
1: Yeah. Five spot.
0: Well, that sounds like it could be fun, just no. because it's in Cincy. It's maybe. Got to get you some. <laughs> got to get you some Cincinnati chili.
1: I don't know. I'm wondering right now. It's about four o'clock. Is Nate's car out there?
0: I think Nate has taken off for a family vacation. They're going up somewhere in uh, Idaho to go snowmobiling.
1: Well, you know what I like to say: no Mark, no Nate, no Steve.
0: All right, there you go. <laughs> the boss is not here. When the when the boss is not here the big cat is at play or something the big like cat
1: that. To, when the boss is not here the big cat will disappear
0: all right there you go but um, yeah we got Arizona cup to look forward to I think coming up
1: yeah there's uh the indoor season or the outdoor season I can't I, I went through and did the schedule today and I can't decide if it's more packed or less packed I think it's less um, I'm kind of I'm looking forward to it
0: it's going to be 60 Fahrenheit here tomorrow. I'm pulling the Interceptor out of the garage.
1: Yeah, I'm going to go shoot my shotgun a little bit. Ooh. There's a there's a local event. So I'm going to go. My, my, my dad's going to be in town, and people probably don't know. My brother was like a super legit sporting clays competitor when he was younger. My dad was legit. And um, I decided to buy a shotgun here a couple months ago and something else to do. And uh, they've... Both kind of gotten back into it since then as well. So we're going to go – I mean, it's it's a fun shoot. It's a fun event. It's something where I can show up and not have expectations. But at the same time, it's going to be competitive as hell between my dad my brother and I. Mm-hmm. And we won't act like it, but we'll be keeping track of each other's scores pretty close. And if it comes down to it, you know, the last five or six stands – there will be a lot of smack talk going on.
0: So, Sounds like a plan.
1: Yeah, someone's got to win, and um, it's going to be me.
0: you got to so. get somebody to throw some video on that.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll put something up. I'll, yeah. I'll get something up. Yeah, I'll, I'll, on, on
0: Steve Anderson's Facebook page.
1: Linda will for sure do some video. Okay. Um, I've, I've been a little slow on social media. There's some stuff actually cooking up, so I know I've, I've talked about how I'm going to do some stuff, and then nothing has happened, but there is some stuff cooking up, so... Um, you'll see it. You'll see it come forward. Sounds I had, good. I had done some, some blog entries and things like that, and, and I was advised that no one reads blogs anymore. So I think I'm going to do some vlog. That's V as in Victor, L-O-G.
0: Yeah. You know what you need to do is get yourself a sports camera, like my Sony ASV200 that I put on my motorcycle helmet. Mm-hmm. Put that thing on your hat. And give us the cat's eye view of the of the clays as you bust them. That would be kind of cool. Yeah,
1: yeah, I, I could. I, I mean, I can't do that tomorrow because I don't have one, but I could do some
0: stuff. I think there's stuff to be done. Well, speaking of video, um, we've got some stuff to do in the next couple of weeks to make sure that we get some uh, nice instructional stuff out there on the on the uh, stabilization thing. And I would love to see your questions. So
1: yeah, what, yeah, they would help to you know, know what we should be covering. Yeah, what do you so, want to see?
0: So send that into our Easton target archery, Facebook or to podcast at Easton And we're
1: probably going to do that from a perspective that nobody knows any, that's kind of the best way to do v- instructional videos. Right. I like everybody is completely stupid, right? Like they don't know what a weight is. They right. don't know what a stabilizer is. So I've, I've, been instructed that when I do world archery stuff, Chris Wells stands in the back and says, "I'm an idiot. I'm a complete moron. I do not know what any of this is."
0: Well, and that's you know what I think that for the vast majority of people out there, that's who's going to benefit the most are the people who don't know what's going on. Because let's face it, the people that do know aren't necessarily they aren't gonna watch. no, they're not going to watch. Yeah. it. so I would say that that's a good plan. Your social media stuff is
1: uh, for the most part Instagram, which I really. I'm too old for Instagram. It's uh, at Steve Anderson 88. Twitter is the same. Facebook.com slash Big Cat Archery. All
0: right. And like I said, our Eastern Target Archery Facebook is Eastern Target Archery. Yeah. And what else we got? Huh? Uh,
1: we, we were, uh, well, we we would like for people to rate the show.
0: Oh, yeah, that's right. On iTunes. Um, please do rate the show. Yeah. Uh, thank you for reminding me.
1: So I was, we, we brought this up because. I think uh, I don't know five six episodes. I said that no one has ever in the history of mankind given a two out of five star rating on a product.
0: We had a rating. We had a reason for this. You've got some product that you picked up that you're yeah. not happy with.
1: So I got some earplugs, hearing, hearing
0: protection. right? Yeah,
1: like uh, hearing protection, custom
0: moldable. This goes along with your shotgun thing.
1: Yeah, I don't like them. I mean, if you were if you were banging a hammer all day and you wanted to have some protection from that, I think they'd be okay. Shooting a gun, terrible, horrible, not any good at all. So I said, you know what, George, I'm going to give him a two star review on Amazon, and then we went into the whole thing. But hey,
0: no one does two star reviews. So not what, that we want a two star review. No, we want
1: five and five only. Even if you don't like us, just give us a actually I, throw honestly, me no, throw me a
0: bone. I don't care what. No, no I, I would I like care. to see constructive reviews. No, I would. I we've had some very nice reviews, by the way, but I would like to see uh, folks. Continuing to review the podcast on iTunes because it helps other people find the podcast.
1: Exactly. It has nothing to do with us because, let's be honest, if they fire us from the podcast, we still make the same amount of money. Exactly. So, um, but I've decided two-star reviews are a thing.
0: Well, because nobody ever does them, like you said. You know, they're almost unheard of on Amazon.
1: I'm going to do one. It's because I think this product, they gave it a few different functionality uh, recommendations, and while I do think it would be adequate for some, it's not for not I for don't. shotgun. Nope. All so. right,
0: which means not for any firearms, really, because shotguns are the least, yes. the least damaging of, in my opinion. So two stars. Yeah, yeah. You know, Sunday that that inspires me. Sunday, I'll go up to, I'll go up to the old PMAA range and start bouncing bullets off the 800 yard uh, plate we've got up there, which is always fun. Be a good time. Well, what the idea is to shoot the. Furthest and most accurate you can with the smallest caliber you can manage.
1: So what are you going to pull?
0: Oh, I'll, I'll bring the SOCOM rifle up there.
1: That is a... 5.56. Five, okay, so 2.23. Yeah, those poodle shooter. Are using the, the uh, metric system. Yes,
0: except it's got a little more oomph than a, than a 2.23, strictly speaking. Yes. Did you know that?
1: I, yeah, they're, for the most part, You can shoot 2.23
0: in right? a 5.56 five, cartridge, but you can't around. shoot a 5.56 five, cartridge in a 2.23 chamber. So it must the lead's have not the same
1: Okay, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, and so we've gone from bows to firearms. Bows to bullets. Let's let's reel it back in because we're horrifying all of our listeners in the UK <laughs> <laughs> and, and Australia. No, no, no. Um, so yeah, I think you know I think it's awesome that we're getting the uh, the tremendous uh, questions from everyone. Thank you again. Because this particular show was based on your questions. Yeah, we didn't have anything to talk about. Nothing. Yeah. Well, we did. We could have brought something up. But what? Something. I got nothing. There's some politics somewhere we could talk about. I
1: could have just made fun of mail-in tournaments for an hour.
0: Could have done that. <laughs> I, mean, there's, I think it's time for... End of show. End of show.